This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, my name is Tina Sachs. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Social Welfare and a member of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We're pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Deborah Tannen, this spring speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated and happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the Gold Rush, where he opened a thriving private practice. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles. And now a few words about Deborah Tannen. Deborah Tannen's research examines the discourse of everyday conversation, including cross-cultural and gender differences in ways of speaking, and the discourse of social media. A prolific scholar, Tannen has written critically praised books for both scholarly and general audiences. Her books include the number one four-year New York Times bestseller, You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, Talking from Nine to Five, Women and Men at Work, You're Wearing That, (laughs) Mothers and Daughters in Conversation, and You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. Her scholarly books include Gender and Discourse, Conversational Style, and Talking Voices, Repetition, Dialogue, and Imagery in Conversational Discourse. Deborah Tannen earned her BA in English Literature from Harper College, her MA in English Literature from Wayne State University, and her MA and PhD in Linguistics right here at UC Berkeley. She is the recipient of five honorary doctorates. Since 1979, she has been on the faculty of Georgetown University's Department of Linguistics, and since 1991, has held the rank of university professor. She has been the McGraw Distinguished Lecturer at Princeton University, spent a term in residence at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and has twice been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. She is also a member of the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Today's lecture, in today's lecture, Tannen will draw on her interviews with 80 women, ranging in age from 9 to 97, and on her years of research examining how ways of talking affect relationships, to explore the role of talk among friends, with particular focus on women's friendships, how they compare to men's, and the consequences of such differences. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Deborah Tannen back to Berkeley.
Wow, thank you. And I didn't even say anything yet. Thanks so much. What a thrill to be back at Berkeley, where, as you heard, I got my PhD in 1979. And everything that I'm going to be saying today started. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to be introduced by Robin Lakoff, who was the reason that I came to Berkeley. And just for those of you who won't be here tomorrow, I just want to say how much I owe to her. Um, it was attending a course that she taught at the University of Michigan the uh, summer of 1973 that I got the idea, this is what I have to do for the rest of my life. And I'm nearer to the rest of my life right now. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, as you heard, I'm going to be talking about the language of women's friendships. Much of what I say, though, will also be true of friendships among women and men, in particular women and gay men, friendships between men. There are things about friendships that will apply across the board. But there also are patterns that tend to distinguish friendships among women and friendships among men. And I tend to is very important. Um, everything that I say about gender, I always make a point of saying some, many, tendency, and it often gets translated as all or norms. We're not talking about norms. We're not talking about um, 100%, but we're talking about tendencies. As you heard, I interviewed a, a large number of girls and women, um, 9 to 97. I heard comments like, my friendships with women are as essential as air. My women friends are the most sustaining thing in my life. I heard many, many comments like that. Uh, and, and you heard that I wrote a book about mothers and daughters. You're wearing that. I, I comment in that book that love between mothers and daughters can be as intense, as complicated, as passionate as romantic love. And I found in doing this research that the same also could be said about some friendships. But I did also hear comments like, I find friendships with women difficult terrain to navigate. And I'm going to try to say something about both sides uh, of those friendships. Um, a woman that I talked to said, in telling me how much uh, she would do for her friend, she said, if a friend called at 3 o'clock in the morning and said, I need bail, I'd say, can I come in my nightie? I'll be right there. Um, I heard a story uh, that a woman told me about when she was in third grade. Her friends had heard, picked up, that there was, she was going through something very difficult and challenging, and the word was out, and how her friends, this is third grade, just formed a phalanx around her to protect her. So they didn't ask what was going on. They didn't ask details out of respect for her privacy. But if they sensed that another girl was about to ask her, they would sort of close in around her and prevent that friend, uh, that girl from getting close to her. And so it was just so moving to hear how early that kind of loyalty to friends could start. I heard about friends who flew across the country when a friend had a loss uh, or an illness stayed for weeks, even months, to, uh, to help. Friend who called every day for a year when her friend lost her husband. Uh, and friends who call every day for no particular reason, just to stay in touch, to know what's happening. Um, and being in touch and knowing what's happening in each other's lives is often not only what is, what is treasured, but also what is required um, of friendship. And in a way, that was the most significant thing that I heard about over and over. 
A friend is someone who's available to talk when you need to. Um, a woman told me in a situation very sad that is not uncommon um, how terrible she was uh, feeling because she had lost a very close friend, lifelong friend who had passed away. And she said, you know, the worst thing is that I can't call her up and tell her how terrible I feel about her dying because that was the person she would call when she went through something like that. Um, Comparing women's friendships to men's, this is a conversation that a woman told me she had with her, uh, with her son that I think captures some of that. And so this is um, a son who had recently graduated from college, was living across the country, and um, she was asking, she was talking on the phone, asking him about a friend that she knew very well. And the conversation went something like this. Um, Have you talked to Mike lately? And he said, yep, talked to him yesterday. How's he doing? I don't know. (laughs) But uh, you just talked to him, didn't he say? Nope. Well, how's his job? I don't know. How's his girlfriend? Don't know. Well, what did you talk about? Football. Did you only talk about football? No. Soccer, too. (laughs) That would be fairly unusual among women friends. Um, And there was um, um, a man in the audience, and when I talked about this, who, who... approached me after, and he said, you know, the same thing, it's still true. He said, <clears throat> he has a, he and his wife are very good friends with another couple, so the wives get together, the guys get together, and, and one evening, his wife said to him, isn't that terrible that they're getting divorced? And he had no idea. He said they had played tennis every week for months, years, but, he said, the topic of his marriage never came up. And that would be surprising among women friends, good women friends. Um, there's, I teach at Georgetown University. I teach a, a class called Cross-Cultural Communication for undergrads. And part of the course requirement is that everybody every week describes some interaction that they've been part of. They write about it, and they analyze it in terms of what we have been doing in class, methods, theories we've been discussing. Uh, And so I want to read you uh, a part of a field note. I call it field notes that a student wrote. This is going to be my first sip of water and the first of many, I'm sure. She wrote, Saturday night after a party, a group of us went to Matt's house to hang out before we went home to bed. I and the other girls proceeded to sit down on the couch And we began talking about the night, what we thought was fun, what we wished had happened, etc. I was in the middle of giving my friend Sarah advice about a boy when all of a sudden the coffee table was pushed out of the way and the guys began to wrestle, throwing each other on the couch, pushing each other off chairs. It was funny for me to see my big guy friends wrestling as if they were five-year-olds. But it also struck me that this is how we chose to relax. The girls began talking, and the guys got up and started play fighting. And this was something that we had discussed in class, that those who study kids at play do find that often boys will tend to play fight. Girls do fight. They just don't fight for fun. They fight when they mean it. (laughs) And the girls will spend more time um, sitting and talking. Um, 
I was interested, though. She said it was funny to see her guy friends acting like five-year-olds, but she and the, her girlfriends were also acting like five-year-olds, but they were acting like five-year-old girls. She also, I was intrigued that she made the point that she was giving her friends advice about a boy, advice about troubles. Um, it is not at all unusual for conversations among women to talk about some kind of problems that they're having. Um, and there was a woman, this is a woman in her 80s, but she remembered this story um, that captured how this can, can function. It was um, a conversation, the, the scenario was she was quite young, uh, she was home with her, with her toddler, little boy. Her neighbor had a, a little boy, similar age. And she said one day she got a call from her neighbor and she was kind of upset because her little boy had dropped a jar of mayonnaise on the kitchen floor, spread the mayonnaise all over the floor, and added eggs to it because he was going to make a cake. <laughs> and what she said was she just left the mess and came over, and we just drank coffee and commiserated. And I love that word, commiserated, because this is one of the functions often that talking about troubles can have. Um, it didn't help clean up the mess, didn't change her neighbor's situation, and yet I'm sure they did both feel much better to realize that they were both in the same boat. And here was somebody who had, had a, similar, a child of a similar age and could go, was going through something similar. Uh, there's a term that we sometimes use, not exactly a technical term, but those of us who study conversation call it troubles talk. Um, and this is a particular kind of talk that, again, is more common often among women friends than men. Um, and it seems quite universal. I have a student from Kazakhstan, and she was home one summer and interviewed women in Kazakhstan about their friendships. And one of the women that she interviewed there made this comment. She said, when you have talked to someone about something that's bothering you, it's lighter on the soul. The day seems sunnier, and troubles step back and start seeming smaller. And I thought that was such a, a lovely um, way to put it. Um, I also, though, want to go back to something that I said about Troubles Talk in the book You Just Don't Understand that I would put a little differently now. I don't think what I said then was exactly right. Uh, one of the scenarios that I wrote about in that book that got a lot of attention, I guess it rang a lot of bells, was a scenario where a woman might tell a man about a problem that she's having, and he tells her how to fix the problem, and she's frustrated because she didn't, what I said at the time was she didn't want a solution, she wanted to talk about it. And he's frustrated because he's thinking, why do you want to talk about it if you don't want to do anything about it? And they're both frustrated because they're trying to be good people and they're being told that they're not being good people. Um, so that's what I commented on at the time. Uh, I would say something different now. I don't think it would be correct to say she doesn't want a solution. Remember those girls on the couch? I was, she said, I was giving my friend Sarah advice about a boy. It's not that we don't give advice. But I think maybe she didn't want a solution right off the bat. So if you tell about a problem to a friend, a good friend, you might expect something like, gee, uh, why do you think he said that? And, um, and, then, and then what did you say? And then how did he respond to that? And then what do you think you might do? And what do you think would happen if you did that? And you ask a series of questions. And partly this because you need the information to know what advice to give. 
But I think there's another level, too. Um, in much of what I write, I talk about the two levels of meaning in conversation. One is the message level, and the other is the meta-message level. So the message would be the meaning of the words. And in case you're interested, this all comes from the anthropologist Gregory Bateson, but he applied it somewhat differently. It's, I apply it to conversation. The message is the meaning of the words, but the meta-message is what it says about the relationship that you say these words in this way at this time. So perhaps the problem is the message, but being willing to talk about it, to ask the questions, to listen to the answers, to take that time to be engaged about something that's bothering you, this sends a meta-message of caring. And I suspect that part of the frustration, if a woman tells a man about a problem and he gives her the solution, isn't that she didn't want a solution, she just didn't want it right off the bat. And giving the solution shuts down the conversation. Whereas starting that conversation was part of her motivation in bringing it up. I sometimes say as an aside, shutting down the conversation may actually be a secondary gain for him. Because if he isn't used to having conversations like that, he might not actually appreciate having to go get into um, all those details. But being interested in it has that meta message that I think is valued. Um, there's another kind of conversation that is very common among women and that is very valued. Um, and that is exchanging secrets. I collect pictures from all over the world of two little girls, and one is whispering in the other's ear. And I've been fascinated by having encountered pictures like that from such disparate cultures across the world. Um, I have encountered them about boys, but much, much more rarely. Um, in fact, I had said, because it was the case, that I had never encountered such pictures among boys, and somebody who was in the audience sent me one. So I can't say I've never seen one, but it isn't, it isn't as common. Um, and, and this is something that I heard about over and over. So as one woman put it, she said, a close friend knows things about me that nobody else does. Um, she said, if someone is a true friend, I tell her everything I think and everything I feel. Um, a woman that I was interviewing was telling me about various, various friendships, and she said at one point about one friend, uh, she's not that close a friend. I wouldn't tell her about my kids' problems. And then later in the conversation, she said about another friend, she's not that close a friend. I wouldn't tell her what I had for dinner. <laughs> now, this might seem odd. You could think why you would only tell about family troubles to a friend. That's a good friend. But why you wouldn't tell her what you're having for dinner? When you think about it, there's that end-of-day conversation with people you're really close to. Could be a family member, could be a romantic partner, and could be a friend. And you say what you did and where you went and what that made you think and what that made you feel and where you went to dinner and what you ordered. <laughs> so, or maybe what you prepared for dinner while you were at home. So again, it's a, an aspect of detail of your life, the caring about which sends a meta-message of closeness. Um, again, writing about mothers and daughters, I encountered the, the daughter who said about her mother, who else can I tell I got a good deal on toilet paper? <laughs> Somebody who cares about that level of detail in your life is something precious, a meta-message of caring. 
Um, when people told me that they were hurt by friends, and that is something I always did ask about, one reason that I often heard as a, as a um, reason for being hurt was not being included or not being invited. And this is more common among women than among men. The, again, I, I refer to people who studied kids at play. Not my research, but the patterns are clear from those who have studied kids at play. Uh, that when boys don't like a boy, they let him play, but they treat him badly. When girls don't like a girl, they lock her out. And when you think about the fact that friends are telling each other secrets, your friends are people that know things about you that others don't, that could be something behind the reason why you can't have girls there who you don't want to be friends with because they can't hear your secrets. So that may be something going on there. Um, so you've probably heard of FOMO, F-O-M-O, which is fear of missing out. Uh, that's the reason that we check our email or our phones or our Instagram and constantly checking because you don't want to miss out. There may be something happening, uh, and if you don't check it in time, you'll miss out. I devised two more acronyms, FOBLO, F-O-B-L-O, fear of being left out. And that's worse than FOMO. With FOMO, you missed the party because you didn't check your phone in time. With FOBLO, you missed the party because you weren't invited. And that's worse. That actually can be more hurtful. And I'll have more to say about that tomorrow uh, because this is one of the um, risks of social media that you're always seeing everybody doing things when you're not there. So that feeling of being left out can be aggravated. Um, but again, it, it comes out of the real um, experience of having been left out and FOGCO, F-O-G-K-O, fear of getting kicked out. Groups of girls will often turn on one girl and kick her out. I heard stories like that, especially from middle school and high school, but I did also hear some stories from adult groups. Um, and again, my, my colleagues who study kids at play have encountered this in real time. Um, I have a colleague, Amy Sheldon, and she has studied uh, preschoolers. And she actually recorded conversation among these little little preschoolers. A couple of them were playing. A bunch of them were playing house. And one girl came over to join them that they didn't like. They didn't want her to join. Well, you know, they tell you in, in um, uh, many of these nursery schools, you can't say you can't play. They know that. So they told her she could play. And, and the one who was assigning roles said, you can be the baby brother, but you aren't born yet. She gave her a non-speaking part. <laughs> so very creative at that so young an age um, of, 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 of kind of locking out those um, that you don't like. Um, I heard so many stories from women, now adults, who still feel guilty about having been part of groups in middle school or high school that locked somebody out, kicked somebody out. Um, and one really stuck in my mind. Uh, there, this is a woman now. She's a, a real estate um, salesperson and very successful. She's in her 40s. She still feels guilty because when she was in high school, the group of friends, and they had been friends since middle school, decided to eject a girl who had been in their group in middle school. And she's the one who I was talking to said, 
she had been really close to that girl and, and um, she felt terrible that she was being cooked out. And she said about her, she was really cute and really good at sports. And this really made me stop and think because among boys groups, someone who was physically attractive and really good at sports, their status in the group goes up. So wouldn't that be a reason to keep her in the group rather than a reason to uh, eject her from the group? When girls eject a girl, turn on a girl, want to uh, punish a girl, they will say things like she really thinks she's something. She's stuck up. She's snobby. I heard so many stories like this. One of the beautiful, wonderful things about girls and women's friendships is a valuing of sameness. Um, I tell you about a problem, and you might say, oh, I know how you feel. I'd feel the same way. Uh, I tell you I feel bad about something I did. You say, oh, I know I would have done exactly the same thing. It's this feeling of sameness which makes you feel less alone in the world. But that expectation of sameness can be a requirement. And if you're not the same, especially if you seem somewhat better or think, seem to think you're somewhat better, then girls can be very critical. And that is what one of the women said who told me that, she said in her words, I find friendships with women difficult terrain to navigate. That's what she said as in, in, in explanation, partial explanation. Um, she said, if you have an opinion that's different or you've chosen a different path, my women friends will often take that as criticism or value judgment. So the expectation of being the same um, can, be, can be a downside. Uh, often, as a point I make repeatedly in the, in the book, the wonderful things and the challenging things are often two sides of the same coin. And I think that is the case with this valuing um, of, of uh, sameness. And I think this valuing of being the same and tendency to be critical of women who seem better is one of the things that presents a double bind for women in positions of authority. This is not about women's friendships so much, although it does come up in friendships, but something that I wrote about um, at, at great length in um, essays and, and other subjects about the women in the workplace, and certainly wrote some op-eds about Hillary Clinton in the last campaign. Uh, that's some of the criticism. I just don't like her. I think came from this feeling of discomfort with a woman who seems not to be self-deprecating, not to be putting herself down, but seems to be comfortable with being in a position of authority. That's, that's a side point. That's a footnote to my talk here. Um, but there were many examples that I, that I encountered of that. I just recently saw a play in New York called Coming From Away. Did any of you see that? Yeah, it, it's based on a real situation, and it's a musical. There's a song in that play, and it's based on a real character. Um, the woman who was the first pilot, at Amer first female pilot at American Airlines, and she sings this song about her life. And there's this line in the song, where she says, when she showed up as the first captain pilot in the cockpit of a plane, the men were very unhappy. They felt a, uh, a girl doesn't belong in the cockpit. And she says, the stewardesses weren't my friend either. They said, do you think you're better than us? So that's, that's that pattern that I, that I encountered. Um, telling this story, again, people come up from the audience and tell me, um, similar experiences. Just recently was told by a woman, 
that her granddaughter in second grade was really unhappy because her three close friends told her they couldn't be her friend anymore because she had won the spelling bee. Now, the happy ending is at least two of them changed their minds. They came around, decided that was not a good reason to end the friendship. Um, the, I'm talking about the place of secrets in friendships uh, and, and such the precious thing of feeling that somebody knows what's going on and you can tell them what's going on in your life. One woman put it this way, and I really liked the way she put it. I thought this was very sweet. She said, when she tells a friend something personal, it's like saying, here's this little piece of me. That means I like you. I thought that was very sweet. But when you think about it, now she has a piece of you. What's she going to do with it? And that is one of the liabilities that I heard quite a lot of stories about um, among women friends. So she might repeat it inadvertently, not realizing it was supposed to be a secret or just letting it slip out without it meaning to. Um, She might, and this I heard again from high school students, uh, let it out on purpose because she got mad at you. Um, And there's another reason that girls and women are very tempted to let other people know that they know your secrets. And this is, this is, again, related to something that I wrote about in You Just Don't Understand. It was said about that book, and, and I did say this in the book relating to other people's research, that girls tend to be cooperative in situations where boys might be more competitive. I wouldn't put that that way anymore because I think both girls and boys, women and men, we are all competitive and we're all cooperative, but maybe in different ways. And one of the ways that girls and women can be very competitive is who knows what and who knows first. So if you're in a group of friends, the person who knows something important first feels like she's raised in the the hierarchy of friends. And um, sisters, when I wrote a book about sisters, I, one, several, more than one, told me if they have really important news, they have to have a conference call. Because if they call one first, the others are going to be offended. <laughs> and sometimes now we do that with close friends with group emails. So you're telling everybody at the same time. Um, and the reason for that, I think, again, especially among girls and women, closeness is like the pot of gold at the end of the relationship rainbow. And knowing secrets, knowing what's going on in your life, is evidence of that closeness. And so there's a real temptation to let people know how close you are by letting them know that you know this. Um, A woman told me that her mother had warned her from the time she was pretty young, uh, be very careful about sharing personal information with women who get their hair done every week (laughs) or women who play bridge regularly. And the reason her mother said was, when they run out of things about themselves to talk about, they will move on to talking about you. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that's interesting, not only from the perspective of uh, repeating secrets, but also it's just showing the assumption that what they want to talk about is people and personal relationships. And that's why you need fodder for those conversations. Um, Another uh, thing that I often heard about when people were hurt, it was not having been told something. Um, A woman told me about a very close friend. Uh, They had traveled together. She had been helping her friend with something or other. 
And then her friend came to her and announced that she had been having an affair and was getting a divorce. And the woman I interviewed said, and she wanted me to be on board with that, but I felt like she had lied to me because I had been telling her what was going on in my life and she had hidden such an important thing from me. So she experienced it almost as a lie. So the requirement to let your friends know what's going on in your life is another thing that is both a gift but also can become uh, limiting. Um, I have heard uh, some of the women who told me that they prefer friendships with men. That was one of the reasons they gave me. They said they felt that they could trust men not to tell their secrets. And I don't think it's that men are inherently more trustworthy than women, but I think it's because they have nothing to gain by it. Whereas we women have a lot to gain by letting others know that they know your secrets and therefore evidence that you are close to them. Um, I want to move to another uh, element that is more common among women's friendships than men. Uh, Again, there's always cultural differences in this, and and, um, I know of many instances where it doesn't fit this gender pattern. But I'm going to read you these two contrasting field notes written by students in my class describing problems with their roommates. And in both cases, it has to do with, uh, well, you'll hear it, but it's a similar, similar challenge in dealing with roommates. And I want to read first how this young woman described this problem and how she solved it. On a couple of different occasions last week, I heard my roommates mention they wanted to have a party on Thursday I didn't think much of it until Thursday afternoon when I realized I would be up all night writing a paper that was due Friday morning. I didn't want to be the annoying roommate that wouldn't allow a party. But at the same time, I didn't want distractions while I was trying to finish a paper under a deadline. So as I was walking back from class with one of my roommates, I asked, So, what are you guys doing tonight? She responded, I'm not sure. We're thinking of having a party. What are you up to? I told her I had a big paper due on Friday. She responded, oh, in that case, we definitely won't have a party. I told her it would be fine with me. But she restated that they would not have a party, and that time I did not resist. I have at times described this as a kind of indirectness. She knew her roommates were having a party, but she didn't say that. She started kind of vague. What are you guys thinking? She needed to tell them not to have the party, but she didn't say it outright. She let them know what the reason was that she'd rather they not have a party and let her friend decide on her own not to have it. And I especially love that first one. They said they wouldn't have a party, and I said, no, no, it's fine with me. Because, again, she doesn't want to be that annoying roommate, but she trusts her friend to come to the right decision. Uh, So now I want to contrast that with the way um, a a young man described how his apartment mate solved a similar problem. This is what he wrote. I could not help but overhear a brief exchange between my apartment mates this week. I was doing something or other in my room with the door open. One of my apartment mates was in his room with the door closed, cramming for his organic chemistry test the next day. My other two apartment mates were watching the World Series in the common room, passionately yelling at every play. 
This went on for a while until the one studying opened the door and yelled, Guys, can you keep it down? I'm studying here. The response was, No. (laughs) The one studying followed with a quick, Go to hell. The conversation concluded with a remark from the common room, which I cannot say in public, but it starts with the letter F. And they said, F you. They actually said it. And the student continues, and with that, the problem was solved. (laughs) They lowered the volume on the television and mellowed out considerably. No one was mad, just a typical way of problem solving in Henley 60. The contrast is pretty striking. (laughs) If you try to imagine a group of women having a conversation like that, it's a little hard to imagine. Try to imagine the guys having a conversation like the one the girls had, it's a little hard to imagine. Um, One of the things I find very intriguing here, though, is the boys were also indirect. If indirectness is not saying what you mean outright, they didn't say what they meant outright. They said no, they said go to hell, but they were going to accommodate. So it was also indirect. But it's a different kind of indirectness. It's a mock aggression, and that is very common among uh, boys and men, a kind of teasing, you know, the kind of showing affection with this punching. It's a kind of mock aggression uh, that has the same meta message of friendliness and closeness. Um, I had an uh, occasion to observe a very similar kind of negotiation among women um, at, a, at a very professional situation. Um, this was a, um, a meeting that was being conference that was being organized by someone. Uh, it, was, it was for professional women, and um, I was going to be one of the plenary speakers. And the woman organizing it told me when I arrived that another one of the plenary speakers, who was a mutual friend of ours, was not going to come. And she said to me, this is what she said to me, she said, Judy isn't going to be making it. She, she called me this morning, and she said, I'm really sick. I, I know I'm coming down with something. I feel horrible. But if you really need me, I'll come and talk. And the organizer said to me, I told her, I need you to stay home and take care of yourself. I said, I love that. Can I use it in my talk? And she said, yes, yes, you can, of course. It was such great, perfect direct communication. (laughs) And I think this is so revealing. Why did she think it was direct? Judy said, I'll come if you need me to. There was no way on earth she was going to go. She knew that the organizer wasn't going to say, I don't care if you're sick. Get out of bed and come here and, and talk. It was direct because it was clear. She knew exactly what was meant, and she did her part in the conversational routine. And this is the beauty of indirectness. It is something that Robin Lakoff, who I mentioned at the beginning, wrote about way back, and I heard about in that first course that I took with her back in 1973. We, especially Americans, can sometimes be a little bit critical of indirect communication. I'm often asked, wouldn't this be a better world if we just all said what we meant? Uh, to which I often say, well, we do, but we use our own conversational style, and if someone's style is different, then they don't know how we mean what we said. But Robin has written, and I think it's so true, that there's a great uh, satisfaction in that kind of indirect communication. Uh, So Judy, the one who wasn't able to speak, didn't have to feel she's letting her friend down. Her friend let her off the hook. And the organizer didn't have to feel she was presented with a fait accompli. She's the one who made that decision. 
Uh, I can't resist telling you, though, that I also encountered um, and a, a very uh, direct observation where it didn't work with someone who didn't share that style. I was in the office of a faculty colleague. She answered the phone while I was there, so I just heard her side of the conversation. And it was something like, I don't see how I possibly could. I am so overwhelmed this term. I'm on the rank and tenure committee. I knew it would be a lot of work, but it's more work than I, than I could imagine. I'm teaching an overload course. Um, I've, I've, I'm four of my dissertation students are de de uh, defending this term. I don't see how I could possibly do it. But if you can't find anybody else. <laughs> and when she hung up the phone, she looked at me with this true look of astonishment on her face. And she said, I can't believe it. I told him I couldn't do it, and he put me on the committee anyway. <laughs> So this is this direct communication. She felt she had told him that. And he took what she said literally because he wasn't, I'm guessing, he wasn't used to that kind of ritual, um, ritual offer uh, that is self-evident you're not supposed to accept. Um, indirectness like that can be confusing among same-sex friends. Um, it's an element of what I've described as conversational style, many of the different things I've written. Um, and I have several examples that I that encountered that people told me of frustration with friends, even close friends, who had different sense of conversational style and sometimes different sense of indirectness. Um, one was a woman who had visited. Um, so, okay, so she and another friend, they were had gone to college together, lived in the same city. A friend, a guy visited who knew them both, and he was visiting this one, and he said he'd really like to see the other one. So she said, fine, I'll call her up and see if she wants to see us, if she's free. She called up the third the other friend, said, so-and-so is in town. Uh, he'd like to see you. Do you want to see him? She said, yes, sure, bring him over. She did bring him over. The next day she called, and she was livid. Why did you do that? Why did you bring him over? I hate him. You know I hate him. <laughs> and she said, but, but you said it was, you wanted us to come over. Yeah, but you should have known by the way I said it that I didn't mean it. <laughs> Which seems ridiculous to those of us who don't use that kind of indirectness, but is self-evident, I think would be self-evident to someone who shared that style. Um, I, I don't know if any of you noticed this, but I had an op-ed in the New York Times just a few weeks ago. Uh, and in it, I tell this anecdote, and I was so embarrassed that I myself missed the possibility of indirectness. So I've written about this since the 1970s, and I still missed it. I had a friend visiting. Um, she, I won't tell you the whole story behind it, but the bottom line was she was helping to serve and to clean up and to act, in my view, act like a host in my own home, and I kept telling her not to, and she kept doing it anyway. Uh, and I would tell her not to, and she would still do it. At one point, she made it into the kitchen. I physically grabbed her and yanked her back and pushed her down in the chair. And I tried to do it in a way that seemed good-natured, but it was, I was really rattled. I really didn't like it. Um, now, she's a good friend. I wasn't going like, to stop being her friend, but I was going to think twice about having her over again. <laughs> <laughs> and I would normally have just let it go, but because I was writing this book about friends, I felt it's research. I need to know her perspective. I need to know why she kept doing it when I told her not to. So I talked to her about it. And when I described it, a look of astonishment went across her face. It had never occurred to her that I meant it. 
And she told me, and I, in, the, in the op-ed, I wrote her about it as family styles or our mother's styles. She had just been in her parents' house. They're older. Uh, she was helping in every stage she was helping. Her mother kept telling her not to. She kept doing it anyway. And at the end of the evening, her mother said, thank you. And she even said at one point, you never listen to me. And I'm so glad you don't. There was no question in her mind that people tell you they don't want you to help, but they really want you to. And it had never occurred to me that she didn't think I meant it. And it's so funny because I've written about this. And that's the thing about conversational style. What seems right to us is seems self-evident. So this has been great. Uh, she says she's very relieved now to know she doesn't have to do all the work at everybody's house. If they tell her not to the third time, she can actually listen and not, not do it. Um, and I can now meta-communicate and say, by the way, I really do mean this. I'm not just saying it. <laughs> uh, but I encountered many other examples of conversational style differences uh, where a friend was offended by something that another friend said or was um, put off by something that was really just a style difference. Um, Two women, very close friends, they're walking around the lake. One is telling the other about something that she really feels strongly about. And the one she's telling to is really listening. And also when she sees something that's really pretty, that's really interesting, like look at those ducks going along the lake and there's little ducklings behind her. Uh, or, um, oh, look at that flower, isn't that beautiful? If you didn't call attention to it, you're walking. You know, it would be gone. Your friend would miss it. At one point, the friend who was uh, telling about the problem, she stopped dead in her tracks and she turned to her friend and she said, you haven't listened to a word I've said. And the one who told me the anecdote was that friend who felt so unfairly criticized. Of course she was listening. This is a conversational style difference. And I'm curious how many people here think if you're listening to something, you can't talk. You can't say, look at that, or throw in a comment. And how many of you feel, of course, that's perfectly fine. It's kind of like you're um, having dinner and you want the salt and someone's telling a story. You don't have to go without salt till they finish their story. <laughs> you might say, you know, excuse me, pass the salt. And that's not an interruption. Um, another friend, I encountered uh, an example of another friend with a conversational style difference. Anybody here from South Carolina? This friend of mine is from South Carolina. I'm, if you have not yet guessed, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, from my hands or my, my accent. Uh, so, you know, pretty good friend. So we're talking about something, and I was telling her about, we were talking about some guy that we both knew, not particularly well, and I asked her what she thought of him. And she said, I don't really know him. And I said, I think he's a jerk. And she said, that's what I just said. And I said, huh? <laughs> but she knows I study this sort of thing, so she explained it to me. She said, in South Carolina, you cannot say somebody's a jerk. So you have to proceed on the assumption that if you knew him long enough, you would find something to like. So I don't really know him means I haven't found anything to like about him. <laughs> You know, I, got, I followed her argument, but I didn't quite believe it because it seemed so far-fetched. 
Luckily, not very long after, I was at some sort of a gathering, and I met someone who said he was from South Carolina. So I thought, I'll test this. <laughs> I said, what would it mean if you asked someone what they thought of someone, and she said, I don't really know him? He said, that means he's a no good, no count. <laughs> so conversational style differences. And you can imagine, I can imagine, how a person who used that style would react to someone like me who says, I think he's a jerk. You can't say that. They must think I'm a jerk <laughs> for talking that way. And what I would think about someone who expects me to know that she didn't mean what she said, that would seem rather unacceptable to me. And this, these conversational style differences really are very significant. And I have a chapter about it and quite a lot of examples about that. I'll just give you one last one. Um, a woman who told me that she was very hurt by a friend because her mother had been in the hospital she was terribly worried about it. She told her friend about it, and the friend never asked, how's your mother? She just assumed that's what a friend does. So she told the friend that she was hurt by that, and the friend, again, was incredulous. She said, oh, my goodness, uh, in my family, you don't ask questions like that. If you wanted to tell me about it, you would tell me, but it would be very intrusive for me to ask. Um, and she was Vietnamese-American, and I suspect that did have... A role. And some of these differences are regional, ethnic, cultural, um, and sometimes just conversational style. Uh, the very expectation that you ask questions as a way of showing interest, which would be self-evident to some people, to others would be intrusive. So these conversational style differences can be very significant. Um, okay, so let me wrap up. Um, Obviously, I've only been able to say some of the stuff that's in the book, but the goal really is to understand the ways that these friendships work, what makes them so gratifying, but also what makes them challenging at times. And as I said, often the challenging and the satisfying are two sides of the same coin. Um, when I talk about it, I often focus on some of the problem things, because I think kind of people, that's where they want help with solving these problems. But um, a talk show I was on, it was a radio call-in show, and somebody called in and said, that's terrible. You're describing awful friendships. I would never have friendships like that. And I said, I hope I didn't give the impression that I think all, every friendship has these kinds of problems at every moment. Um, there really is a lot about what is precious about friendships, and that is what I really heard about more than anything else, how precious those friendships can be. And in particular, I kept being struck by the role of talk. Uh, and that is, again, one of the things that really does tend to distinguish women's friendships in particular. But talk is something that can get you into more trouble than maybe activities. Uh, and, and sometimes I have been told by women that they feel there's too much talk. A woman especially was telling me when she went through her divorce, she avoided her women friends because she didn't want to talk about it. She said she really valued a guy friend who was also going through a divorce. They just rode their bikes for hours and didn't talk. Um, and so I think sometimes that can be a, almost a liberation to realize you don't always have to talk, just as it can be a liberation to realize that you can talk. Um, so... I'll just end by saying that in uh, 
everything that I'm saying about women friendships is probably true of many other relationships. And also, again, it's not limited to women. It's women and men. Um, certainly, I could say a lot about friendships among women and gay men. My own best friend is a gay man, and I do have some things to say about that in the book. Um, but I guess overall, I would like to leave a, a sense of appreciation and also caution about the role of talk in these close relationships. Thank you. Thank you. We do have time for questions. Yes. So I would just like to, um, to open it up for questions and also to, to thank uh, Dr. Tannen for her comments. And if you have a question, please approach the mic. It's intimidating, but if you have a question, come to the microphone. Yes, thank you. So people you. can hear, including me. Hi. Hi. I'd like to thank you. You, um, your book, You Just Don't Understand, helped start my, my marriage off at a really good part, and we still even say to each other, do you want ice cream? <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. And my husband you. says no, and then we laugh at, at all that. I'm hoping for two things from you. <laughs> um, I'm an East Coast transplant. I'm from Philadelphia. I lived there, from, grew up there, came out to California about 30 years ago, and I still have trouble communicating with Californians. So, now I have to interrupt here because I'm from Brooklyn. I'm going to interrupt. (laughs) My dissertation was a comparison of New York and California conversational styles. That's what I wanted to ask you. Do you have a book? You have a book about mothers and daughters and women. Do you have a book on East Coast versus West Coast? That direct stuff you were just talking about at the end of your speech is, is my life story, and I've gotten in trouble so many times. 30 years out here, and I can't fix it. Uh, do you have a book on that, or I do. Can you point me to a book on that? <laughs> and also, the last piece of that is, what advice do you have for someone who obviously can't change the way she communicates and yet gets in trouble for that very thing? Uh, yeah, okay, so just let me say a little bit about So it was my dissertation, and it's a book. It's an academic book, but it's pretty, pretty, everything I write is pretty readable. The book is called Conversational Style, Analyzing Talk Among Friends. Um, and, and then I have the book called That's Not What I Meant, which is just all the things that can differ, including the things that differ, New York and California. But I, I, this may be some of what you're experiencing. It was so shocking to me, and I'll have more to say about this tomorrow, that I'd be accused of being rude when in New York I was considered overly polite. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, I had friends who literally would say, I'm not really New York Jewish, which is what I am. It's not just New York. It's East European Jewish. I must really be a wasp because I'm so indirect and so self, you know, all that. And suddenly here I was being called rude. Um, and it's things like talking along to show enthusiasm and you're perceived as, indirect, as uh, interrupting. Um, the length of pause between turns. And this can vary, not just New York and California, but Californians in New England or New England and the South. South, Anytime two people are talking, if one is expecting a slightly shorter pause, you get the feeling that the other person is nothing to say and you want to be a nice person and save the conversation, so you start speaking. And if that person is waiting for a slightly longer pause, it never comes and they feel interrupted. so, yeah, and on and on and on, other things like that. Okay. What can you do? I'd say meta-communicate. 
talk about it. You know, I, I, that example I gave, this is my really close friend, Tamara, um, had I left it that she has this weird pattern that she keeps helping even when I tell her not to, that would have been where it stayed. But when we talked about it, we, we really were able to figure it out. And it was a gift, I think, to both of us. Raised my awareness to apply what I'd written about in my own life. <laughs> People may, not, may think I don't mean what I say. And for her to realize that sometimes she, people don't, people really mean what they say. Okay. So meta-communicate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you come up? Well, uh, thanks for your speech. And I think y'all, uh, the research you are doing is very interesting and exciting. And speaking of the friendship, I recall a um, classical and controversial uh, question, at least I think so. And do you think uh, there is a simple and pure friendship between a girl and a boy? So the question is, is simple, pure friendship possible between a girl and a boy? Is that the question? Yeah, friendship, uh, just a friendship. Have nothing to do with the love relationship or other, just the pure and simple friendship between yeah, friendship. a girl and a boy. Um, well, it's an interesting question. Um, my short answer is yes, I do. But... Um, I'm thinking of lesbians that I interviewed who told me that they found it, sometimes found it simpler. One woman I'm thinking who I interviewed said she found that her closest friends were straight women and gay men so that there, because there was no confusion about what kind of friendship it was going to be. And that in her group, if a woman somehow developed a um, crush on someone that wasn't returned, it was sort of difficult for everybody, for the whole group. Um, I'm thinking of women who told me that gay men are their closest friends. Part of, that's part of what they told me about that. Um, it was wonderful. They really loved the guy's company, but they don't have to worry about that tension. Um, so I think that layer is there. But, yeah, I, do, I, do, I have encountered examples of, if you want it, simple friendship. <laughs> if simple means no sexual overtones, I do think it's possible. <laughs> Thank you. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm wondering if you have any um, suggestions about how to, as a woman, negotiate aspiration versus keeping your friends. Aspiration versus? Versus keeping your friends. You talked earlier about um, women, like the girls who kick their friend out for being the spelling bee. Um, any tips for yeah, that, defusing that? Yeah, it's so complicated. I'm thinking of, again, real anecdotes I heard about. Women telling me that they felt their friends really stopped being their friends because they got a higher job or whatever. And sometimes it's just, if somebody has something you really want, it's hard to be with them. So I'm thinking of a woman who told me she had a baby and a friend of hers who desperately wanted a baby and wasn't able to get pregnant just didn't want to be with her because it was so painful. Mm -hmm. And then later they reunited and you know got past it. But mm -hmm. um, 
So what can you do about it? I guess my, my solution to everything is you can try accommodating, you can try talking about it, mm-hmm. and then sometimes you just have to let it go for a while and, and mm-hmm. see if it's, you can come back to it later. Mm-hmm. Now, you should know I'm not a therapist and I have no experience on which I'm basing this. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I've been a big fan of your writing for a while. Thank so, you. Um, in one of your books, you talked about sympathy and how men and women perceive it very differently. Sympathy. And, yeah, and how women, when you, women friends, when you express sympathy, they see it as, as the sameness, getting on the same level. And you could say the exact same thing to a male friend or a male partner, and they view it as hierarchical, that you're putting them down. Yeah. And I found that fascinating, and yes. I've noticed that a lot, but I don't know how to navigate it. Um, yeah. So if you, have, if you could elaborate on that at all, that would be wonderful. Thank yeah, you. I agree. It's fascinating. Um, you know who helped me understand that? Uh, Robert Bly. Do you remember around the time that my book, You Just Didn't Understand, was a bestseller? Robert Bly had a book called Iron John that was also a bestseller. And we did a thing together. And he really helped me understand. I never quite understood this myself. Um, He said that sympathy seems to be, like you said, a put-down and also a reminder of this bad thing that you want to forget. So he was saying for many men, the kindest thing you can do is act as if it didn't happen. (laughs) You know, help him forget it. And, And, yeah, it's so widespread, Um, And I have encountered really serious issues among people who are close. Uh, One couple who had been through 9-11 together, they had an apartment quite close to the World Trade Center. And so that had been very um, traumatic for them. And the wife wanted to talk about it and the husband didn't. And the more she wanted to talk about it and he wouldn't, the more alienated she felt, the more alone she felt, the more let down she felt. And the more she kept trying to talk about it when what he really wanted to do was not talk about it and move on was upsetting to him. Um, So I guess I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think if they had talked about it and kind of come to an understanding of why each of them is reacting this different way, then maybe they could figure out a compromise. And that's what, you know, when I'm called by journalists about all these things I write about, they always want to know tips. What can you do? What's the tip? And I always say, I can't give tips because each situation is different. Each person is different. The tip I give is understanding. If you all, both understand what's going on, then you can decide how to proceed. And so you might decide, I just have to not offer sympathy. It makes me feel bad because I think I'm letting him down and I should be offering sympathy, but I realize that's what he wants. So... I'm giving him the gift of what he wants. And, and he might have to learn to offer some sympathy <laughs> because that's what might be helpful to you. So I don't know if that's hugely helpful, but that's my thoughts. Hi. First, I want to say thank you very much for your research and your writing. Um, I used uh, your research on um, gender differences in communication when I was teaching at the college level, and now the teacher has become student again. And so my question is pertaining to um, 
If you're doing any research or the research of your colleagues on intergenerational differences in terms of friendship, I'm in my early 50s. Um, I have, I'm probably, I'm near the top end. I'm at one of the seminaries here through the GTU. And a lot of my colleagues are in their 20s and 30s. Um, they're the age of my adult children. They're the age, uh, a little bit older than the age of the students that I used to teach. And, I've, and just a general trend is um, circumspect, um, uh, uh, reticent, um, and I can do the whole texting and the social media thing, but I have a sibling that's only two and a half years younger than myself, and her primary mode of communication is through texting. And so some of this may be addressed in your talk tomorrow, but um, yes. is conversation, is intimacy through conversation becoming a lost art as those of us that are in the boomer generation and maybe some of the Gen Xers continue to age and fade out? Yeah, I will have a bit to say, a lot to say tomorrow about generational differences in use of social media, um, but especially the mechanics of it and assumptions about what's appropriate and what's not and use of punctuation and other um, markers like that. But the question of friendships across age, I have a bit to say about it in the book, but not a whole lot. Um, and sometimes what people told me in those interviews about friendships with older or younger, much older, much younger friends, oh, we often ended up being about social media, um, like um, a student saying that she really considered this older friend a good friend, but that friend didn't understand that having her Facebook page open didn't mean she was actually open for interaction. <laughs> she might be in class with the Facebook page open. Not in my class, but <laughs> I don't allow it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm sure there's more to say about that and maybe, maybe a future book. Thank you. Since it's welcome back to Berkeley, I want to ask a political question. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're reading, we're hearing from many people. We have to learn to talk with people and listen to people with whom we don't agree. And I think um, it's one more layer about, uh, you know, what are your values in addition to all these things you say about rituals and style. So it feels impossible. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think I want tips, but maybe, I mean, maybe I do want tips, but do you have any insight that, that could help us? I, I'm asked about that a lot. Um, I wrote a book called The Argument Culture. It was published in 1998, but I think it's more true and more accurate and relevant today than it was even back then. Um, and, and the point I made there is that our public discourse is polarizing because we turn everything into a fight. Um, and, and the news media ex ex and, and politics, certainly, they exaggerate that. By, they don't find people to put on who are somewhere in the middle. They find the most extreme sides that they can find, even if they have to scour the fringes of lunacy to find them. And they won't even cover something if there isn't another side. And they make everything into two sides, where most things are not two sides. There are many sides. Um, and I think what we're reaping now is the harvest of that being the 
um, norm in our public discourse over so long. And it has crept into personal relationships. I think people are more confrontational, more belligerent in, in private interactions now because of that, that tone being so pervasive in our public discourse. And I think it's corrosive, corrosive to the human spirit. The specific question, everyone's telling us now you have to talk to people that you don't agree with, and how do we do that? Um, I've certainly encountered the phenomenon that people are less likely to do it now. People who won't go home to their relatives because, okay, they knew that their relatives were Republican. That was okay. They put it aside. But now, knowing somebody voted for Trump, they feel is so... The ramifications have been so terrible that they just don't want to deal with it. Um, Okay, I'll say one thing. (laughs) I have read that if you talk to people you don't agree with, our impulse is to tell them what we think and change their minds. And nobody changes their mind because of something you told them. But if you listen to them and have them tell you everything that they think and you really listen and you really consider it, that if you then eventually work your way around to showing another perspective, they'd be more likely to hear it. So maybe that's one little bit of advice. (laughs) I think we're done, yeah? Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.